This is FSRN, the weekly edition. I'm Nell Abram. Coming up on this week's show, lawmakers on Capitol Hill go through the motions of the now-routine government shutdown showdown over budget appropriations. Purges in Turkey continued this week, with more than 9,000 police officers suspended and 1,000 other individuals detained. And after 17 years, with this newscast, Free Speech Radio News officially signs off the air. Those stories and more on FSRN's Weekly Edition. In what's become a ritual on Capitol Hill, the U.S. House and Senate faced off in a government shutdown showdown this week. Friday morning, the House authorized a one-week extension to keep the lights on while they try to reach an agreement on funding for the balance of the current fiscal year. Texas Representative Sheila Jackson Lee called the continuing resolution a can-kicker, saying lawmakers still need to grapple with a budget proposal that undermines the governance of the nation. My Houston Housing Authority has now stopped vouchers for families in Section 8 housing for fear of not having the money. They had breaking news two days ago telling those families, don't show up because we have no money to house you. Similar to no money and no room at the end. The Senate followed suit hours later. The continuing resolution came a day after the GOP once again pulled a proposal for rewriting the nation's health care law, failing a second time to rally enough votes within their own party. Moderate Republicans were concerned that insurers would be able to charge consumers with pre-existing conditions exorbitant premiums. President Trump also capitulated on a trade-off, leaving subsidies to offset health insurance premiums for the poor in place, while backtracking on a demand for a $1.4 billion down payment on the southern border wall he has repeatedly boasted Mexico would pay for. But plans to ramp up an immigration clampdown appear to be on track, with funding to expand immigration detention capacity by at least 21,000 beds and hire thousands of new Border Patrol and ICE agents still in the budget request. The Trump administration's deportation push got a state-level nudge from Texas this week. In the wee hours Thursday morning, the state's lower house passed a bill immigration policy observers say is the most radical state legislation since Arizona's controversial SB 1070. It comes on the heels of a Ninth Circuit court ruling against the administration's attempts to deny federal funding to cities where local police do not take on federal immigration enforcement duties. Shannon Young has more. After 16 hours of heated debate that ran until 3 a.m. Thursday, the Republican majority of the Texas House of Representatives pushed through SB 4, known as the Anti-Sanctuary City Bill. It prohibits cities and counties from enacting laws that prevent the use of local resources for immigration enforcement. During the hearing phase of the bill, even police chiefs and sheriffs spoke out against it, saying it will undermine public safety. Frank Sherry, executive director of America's Voice Education Fund, says the bill is a radical measure in the national context. This is a dramatic enabling of a federal strategy with uh, now coerced local cooperation to uh, make undocumented immigrants and their families 
so terrified of staying that if they're not picked up to be deported, that they pick up and leave on their own. SB4 not only mandates collaboration between federal and local police, but an amendment tacked onto the bill could allow for the removal or criminal prosecution of elected officials or law enforcement who refuse to comply. Austin City Council member Greg Kassar says the measure is unconstitutional and he will continue to openly oppose it. Many of my neighborhoods are majority immigrant neighborhoods. And during the recent Immigration and Customs Enforcement door-to-door raids that occurred, I saw terror in homes and in children's eyes like I've never seen before. I sat in constituents' homes where they had duct tape sheets across the windows and were packing all their things up to go and abandon homes that they themselves own. And what this bill is asking us to do is not only unconstitutional, but is trying to push us into making children and families feel that kind of fear every time they see a police officer, not just every time that there's an immigration and customs enforcement raid. In addition to its substantial population of immigrants with legal status, Texas is home to 1.5 million undocumented residents, according to estimates by the Migration Policy Institute. The state is also one of four so-called minority-majority states, where people of color outnumber whites. Jose Garza, executive director of the Workers' Defense Project, says SB4 is the latest example of a bill that marginalizes members of the state's demographic majority. In the very recent history, at least three federal courts have found that the state of Texas um, passed legislation that had a discriminatory impact and a discriminatory intent. And some of those findings were specific to populations along the Texas-Mexico border. The counties in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas are the most heavily Latino in the United States, with 9 in 10 residents identifying as Hispanic, according to U.S. Census data. Those communities are so militarized right now, what with local law enforcement, what with the Department of Public Safety, Border Patrol, State Guard. Terry Burke, executive director of the ACLU of Texas, says SB4 plus militarization in border communities is a recipe for abuse of power. This is an invitation to racial profiling when, you know, 90 percent of the people who live in an area are, are brown skinned and look quote-unquote foreign, they're going to be asked for their papers. They're going to be asked to prove uh, that they are, have legal status. While cities in California doubled down on resisting the Trump administration's anti-sanctuary policies, Texas's SB4 is putting the Lone Star State and its large immigrant population on the front lines of a 21st century civil rights battle. Shannon Young, FSRN. In Turkey, the government carried out a fresh series of raids this week, arresting another 1,000 people and purging the police force of more than 9,000 officers allegedly connected to the U.S.-based cleric who President Recep Tayyip Erdogan blames for last summer's attempted coup. The country remains under a state of emergency, extended after protesters took to the streets decrying what they say was fraud in the recent referendum. Umar Farouk reports from Istanbul. Every day since the referendum, thousands of people have taken part in protests like this one in Istanbul. We are protesting here today because um, there were some frauds. Uh, we noticed uh, the 
I don't know how to translate it, election committee, let's say, uh, changed the rules while votings were still going on. And then we think these changes were just for uh, governments and Erdogan, Erdogan's government's uh, profit. Scores of protesters have been detained, leaving some, like this man, too frightened to give their names. But they keep coming out each night because they are angry at Turkey's Supreme Election Commission, which has refused to entertain allegations of fraud. The Commission's decisions are final and cannot be appealed to any court. Gurkan Ozturan is part of Doku's 8, one of several civil society groups that monitored the voting and collected evidence of electoral irregularities, like ballot stuffing and the presence of armed men inside polling stations. Mostly these kinds of stories, but also the reports regarding uh, unstamped ballots, the invalid ballots, they have been reported throughout the day, starting from morning until evening that uh, people have been saying that uh, on the envelopes, on the ballots, there were, there were uh, no official stamps making it a valid ballot. Opposition parties, as well as a team of monitors from the European Union, say both the campaigning and the vote itself was not free and fair. With the results so close and the stakes so high, they are calling for a revote. But Harun Armagan, a member of Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, says the opposition is unhappy with the results and is trying to sidestep what was a historic moment for Turkey's democracy. When the result is very close in, in terms of percentage, not in terms of numbers, because the number says that 100, 1 million, 1.4 million difference uh, between two votes. Uh, and uh, they just want to create an atmosphere that uh, to create even national and international bodies that this result is not trustable. Armagan says Turkish voters approved the constitutional reforms that consolidated powers in the president's office, so their demands can be more efficiently met by the government. The referendum ended up being not so much about the balance of powers in the country, but about the track record of Erdogan's party. Since it came to power in 2002, Turkey's GDP per capita has tripled, and many legal restrictions on overt religious practices, for instance, wearing the headscarf in public schools, have been repealed. There was even a period when the government engaged in a peace process to end a three-decade-old separatist Kurdish insurgency. For many of Turkey's conservatives, Erdogan is the man who can ensure those policies continue, even if that means he must be handed broad powers. As long as Erdogan keeps winning elections, Armagan says, he cannot be called a dictator. But for activists like Ozturan, the referendum and Turkey's struggle to become a true democracy holds an important lesson for the rest of the world. If people feel that they do not, their vote does not count, their uh, rights cannot be sought through, uh, through the legal proce procedure, then populist uh, waves can come. And if the people feel the discomfort, they will eventually slide towards uh, more populist authoritarian figures, which promise them uh, leadership and comfort. Opposition parties have announced they will appeal the referendum results to the European Court of Human Rights. But there is little indication the government will reconsider the raft of constitutional amendments, which it says now has the public support. Omar Farouk, FSRN. Istanbul. Since ancient times in India, snake charming has been a popular form of entertainment. 
It's also been the only source of livelihood for hundreds of thousands of snake charmers. But several years ago, the practice was declared illegal, leaving practitioners in dire economic straits. Bismillah Gilani brings us the story of a community struggling for survival. At the Suraj Kund Craft Fair on the outskirts of Delhi, a group of local folk musicians is entertaining the visitors. Wearing orange dresses with matching turbans, they play melodious tunes of popular Hindi songs on the gourd flute or bean. Their performances enthrall the audience and many break into dance. But the musicians themselves don't look very enthusiastic. 75-year-old Badrinath heads the troupe. This is not what we want to do. It's been thrust upon us. But since our original work has been banned, this is all we can do. Whether we are happy or not doesn't matter. Badri and his companions are all snake charmers. For generations, they made their living street performing with snakes in villages and towns across India. But snake charming is no longer legal. And Badri says that leaves them unable to make ends meet. Snakes and snake charmers have been together from time immemorial. This is the only thing we and our ancestors have known and lived on for centuries. Now it has been taken away from us. We have not only lost our livelihood, we've been cut off from our roots. These performances here can sustain a few of us for a few days, but what after that? And what about the rest of the community? Snake charming was banned under the Wildlife Protection Act in the late 1990s. The law prohibits catching, owning and performing with snakes. Initially, the government didn't enforce the ban and snake charmers carried on with their work. But a few years later, animal rights activists pressured authorities to clamp down on snake charmers. Kartik Satanarayan from the conservation group Wildlife SOS says the charmers abuse the snakes and there has been a noticeable decline in their numbers. They basically dehydrate them, they stick them in a box, forget about them, use them whenever they want, the, want to make a performance or beg some money from people. Once the job is done, they just throw the snake away because they don't care. And snake then sometimes dies, it takes them weeks of starvation to die because the fangs have been removed, the venom glands have been removed, they can't really hunt and spend for themselves anymore. But snake charmers strongly deny the charges of animal cruelty. The ban affected an estimated 800,000 snake charmers living in India. Many switched to other occupations like rickshaw pulling, street vending and working as construction and agricultural labourers. But an overwhelming majority remained jobless. Some however refused to give up the tradition. Like this snake charmer performing on a Delhi street. He opens his baskets and three cobras rise up, flaring their hood in a menacing stance and appearing to dance to the music from his bean. He then moves closer to the audience, showing them the reptiles and explaining differences between the species. But soon a policeman arrives and the snake charmer quickly flees the scene. His brother Birjunath says they are used to playing this game of hide and seek with both the police and forest officials. Back at the craft fair, the snake charmers are pinning all their hopes on the bean. Another member of the music troupe, 
Vikram B. Nath explains. There are so many musical instruments out there, but the bean stands out. It belongs exclusively to us, and it is completely homemade. We make it with gourd and bamboo. It represents us as a community and our unique way of life, and it's part of India's cultural heritage. It needs to be preserved, and that would require state patronage and promotion. Vikram Nath says, unless the government invests in preserving history and music of the snake charmers, within a few decades, the centuries-long practice will disappear without a trace. Bismillah Gilani, Free Speech Radio News, New Delhi. In Nigeria, millions of dollars of stolen public funds have been recovered in recent months, as President Muhammadu Buhari wages a war against corruption. Whistleblowers are playing a major role, but exposing corruption can come at great cost in Nigeria, a country where graft is deeply entrenched and impunity has long been the norm. FSRN's Sam Olukoya reports from Lagos. Street protests to call on the Nigerian government to combat corruption and provide basic public services like water infrastructure, electricity, roads and healthcare have become commonplace. Infrastructure is often either lacking in Nigeria or poorly maintained due to widespread corruption like looting of the public coffers or cutting corners in the construction of public works projects. The current president, Muhammad Buhari, has been trying to make good on campaign promises to root out corruption and has thus far been successful in a number of high-profile cases. Some of them involve billions of public dollars. In these investigations, whistleblowers have played a key role and some have paid a high price. Olui Birogba said he was fired from his job as a school financial administrator and harassed after I brought forward allegations of corruption at his workplace. My office was sealed off. So my official residence where I was staying was locked, was locked up and, and being persecuted. And uh, I was remanded in prison custody for two weeks. Even the psychological trauma is there. Uh, I am suffering here in silence. Those who have done the right thing should not be made to look as if they have done the wrong thing. A crowd in Nigeria welcomes a former state governor after he has served a jail term in Britain. This is the Nigerian irony. Many of those who steal public funds give part of the loot to people who become their loyal supporters. These supporters always stand by them, especially when they get into trouble with looted funds. Most of those involved in high-profile corruption cases are senior government officials. They've been known to use their position to hunt down those who exposed them. Key witnesses in corruption cases have been harassed or even assassinated. The same silencing tactics have also been deployed against journalists uncovering corruption. Stella Umofia is with the International Press Center in Lagos. Most times, journalists who are involved in whistleblowing are arrested, detained, and nothing comes out of it. For example, one journalist was beaten to a point of stupor and nothing was done about it. So most times, journalists are at risk for doing their job, bringing information to the people. Mr. Speaker, I need your protection. Even members of parliament are not immune to the intimidation tactics. Abdul Mumin Jibrin, a parliamentarian who accused some of his colleagues of corruption, 
was shouted down on the floor of the house mid last year. He was subsequently suspended from parliament and he had to flee Nigeria following death threats. Men who were victimized on account of exposing corruption are not as powerful and have fewer recourses to fight back against retaliation. Bamdele Ajinde, who lost his job as an accountant after exposing corruption, says he is going through difficult times. So I, I, I've been jobless. My last one is at home now. I can't send him to school. Even to eat now is extremely difficult. Even I can't even perform my minimum responsibility as a father and a husband at home. There are now calls for a law to protect whistleblowers, given the risk they face. The irony, perhaps, is that while on the one hand, the government is fighting corruption, majority of the attacks on whistleblowers are being instigated or perpetrated by government officials who still want to remain corrupt in spite of the anti-corruption drive. Which hand wins will come down to the force of political will. Sam Olukoya, FSRN, Lagos. Since 2000, Free Speech Radio News's mission has been to provide factual reports on important international and domestic news stories often missing in the corporate press and to amplify the voices of the ignored and unheard. Those voices have been broadcast on radio stations across the U.S. in tens of thousands of news stories spanning 17 years. Today, FSRN itself is in the news because of the stories we can no longer tell. The very first story reporter Lena Nozizwe produced for FSRN was about a transgender college student. Today, her last report for us is about the beginnings and the end of FSRN. This is the first broadcast of Free Speech Radio News. The producers are members of Pacifica Reporters Against Censorship. The year was 2000. The state of Vermont became the first to pass legislation legalizing same-sex couple unions. Hillary Clinton was elected to the U.S. Senate. And in a contested presidential race, the Supreme Court ruled that George W. Bush was the winner. 2000 also marked the birth of Free Speech Radio News, founded when a group of reporters went on strike against the Pacifica radio network. The strikers said management was censoring coverage of internal politics at the flagship community radio organization. Independent radio stations across the country supported the strike by airing the newscast. One of my first recollections of free speech radio news was when it split from Pacifica and became an entity all to its own. Uh, an entity that was very collective in its nature, which was uh, rather unique. General manager of WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, Matt Murphy was a listener and fan from the beginning. Free Speech Radio News rapidly became our daily news that came on the airwaves uh, just before Democracy Now! FSRN became a worker-run collective and pioneered the decentralized newsroom model with production staff in different cities around the world rather than concentrated in media hubs like New York or Washington, D.C. Nell Abrams soon joined the international team. Staff were in their offices or their homes or their studios all around the world and gathered via conference calls to make decisions about what stories they could cover. FSRN, St. Petersburg, Russia. Sam Olukoya, FSRN, 
Lagos. That was part of the allure for former FSRN anchor Dorian Marina. On any given day at FSRN, you could have an editor sitting in New Delhi, another in Oaxaca, Mexico, a producer in, in Miami, Florida, another in Los Angeles, and another still in the Philippines. And it made for something unlike anything else on the air during its time. More than 100 stations around the country soon began airing the daily newscast. One of them was KPFT in Houston, where FSRN grabbed the attention of Shannon Young as a listener in 2002. That's when I heard Fariba Nawa on FSRN. I've been searching for a new angle on Afghan women to report on, aside from the normal we're so oppressed, America, come and save us, reporting in the mainstream media so often. Oddly enough, the story came running to me today. She had phoned in a commentary that succinctly summed up just why it's so important to go to journalists who are from or who live in the communities they report on precisely because they understand and can convey a nuance that outsiders simply don't pick up on. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Fariba Nawa in Kabul. During 17 years of reporting the news, often ignored in the corporate media, hundreds of reporters around the world amplified the voices of the people in their communities, content that went into producing more than 23,000 headlines, features, and documentaries heard on more than 100 stations around the United States. Then in late 2013, all of FSRN's voices, including Nawa's, were silenced. The program ran out of funding after their main client and distributor fell months behind and then defaulted on payments. During the silence, a skeleton team retooled and a few months later relaunched as FSRN, the weekly edition. But even so, producing the program comes at a price that FSRN is no longer able to pay. Despite continued support from individual members and carriage fees paid by radio stations, it's simply not enough. The loss is already felt by news director Eileen Alfandari, who says FSRN has been a staple at KPFA Community Radio in Berkeley a station that was supportive of the initial strike that led to FSRN's creation. And she wonders about the impact on journalism. FSRN's demise comes at a time when too much of the news has been reduced to short sound bites or, yes, tweets. And the commitment of FSRN to dive deep into an issue has been more important than ever. I am also concerned about what happens to the freelance journalists who've been filing for FSRN and whether this will tip some of them out of the field, whether this will be, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Especially at this time, we need more of this independent journalism, not less. And I am very, very sorry to see FSRN go. And she's not the only one. Lena Nozee's way, FSRN. Los Angeles. And that does it for our program. Over the years, our editorial staff have been based in Oaxaca, Mexico, Berkeley, California, Richmond, Virginia, New Delhi, India, New York City, Cape Town, South Africa, Los Angeles, Tampa, Florida, and Eugene, Oregon. 
Technical support has been provided at community radio stations like KPFA and WTJU. For the last three years, Shannon Young and I jointly served as editors of our program. Roe Packard has been our technical engineer. We'd like to sincerely thank all of the reporters, staff, affiliate stations, and listener sponsors who've made FSRN possible during the last 17 years. Nell Abram, FSRN, Tampa. Shanavaz Khan, FSRN, Srinagar. Jim Kent, FSRN, Hot Springs, South Dakota. For FSRN, Fari Benawa, Istanbul. Georgia Clark, FSRN, Jakarta. For FSRN, I'm Melinda Tuhus in Nash County, North Carolina. Rami Almighari, FSRN, Gaza. Bismillah Gilani, Free Speech Radio News, New Delhi. From Cape Haitian with Cody Emanuel and Deepa Fernandez. Naomi Fowler, FSRN, London. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Ponnaya Manikavasagam in Vaunia, Sri Lanka. From Kakarvita in Eastern Nepal, I'm PC Dubey. Jorge Garreton, FSRN, Santiago. Putnik Kilambi in Pristina, reporting for Free Speech Radio News. With assistance from Manuel Rueda, I'm Natalia Viana in Bogota, Colombia. Roe Packard, FSRN.